LinkedIn presents. Hey folks, producer Caleb here. Back in 2019, our curator Susan Kane interviewed Liz Fosline and Molly West Duffy in front of a live audience in our offices in New York. And until now, that conversation has only been available on the Next Big Idea app. But we thought it's the holiday season, let's embrace the spirit of giving and share this present from the Next Big Idea archives with you, with our listeners. Liz and Molly are the authors of No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work, which was chosen by Susan and our three other curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink, as one of the eight best books of 2019. And listening to their conversation, I was delighted by the timeless wisdom, humor, emotional intelligence, I was also reminded how much fun it is to do live, in-person events. We may have to organize a few of those in 2023. Stay tuned. Anyway, enjoy this conversation. Happy holidays, and we'll talk to you in the new year. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I don't know how much all of you who are here today or those of you who are listening online have had a chance yet to engage with the work that Liz and Molly do with their book, with their website, and so on. But I, I urge you to take a look at it because it's really unique. And in, in some ways, I want to start out by asking you guys, you talk a lot about identity in your work. And so I want to ask you what you think of your own identity as being because I, I find you to be such creative superstars. Um, <laughs> and And I've never really seen work like yours that's clever and incisive and thoughtful and just so winsome and delightful to engage with. Like it's all these things all at once. I've never really seen it before. Um, and so how do you describe your identities as creative people? Sure. Um, I can start. I, I do think that a lot of the creative part of the book comes through Liz's illustration. So I'll let her talk about that. Although I have to say my favorite part of the creative process. Spoken with the modesty of an introvert. Is, <laughs> is um, getting to collaborate and seeing words turn into illustrations. Like we, we would write in Google Docs and then at some point in the process, Liz would do the illustration draft. And I would always get so excited to see the illustrations because... I think that they visualize things that are hard to verbalize a lot of times. So she can talk about that. For myself, um, I have always, like I when I was in high school, I wanted to be an architect. I've always been really drawn to design and visual things. Turned out I was like more interested in the people inside buildings than the buildings themselves. And so I'm really fascinated by sociology and how groups connect and that shows up in the book. I think the creative part of me deeply is a writer. Like I write to understand the world. If I really want to understand something, I write about it, even if it's just for myself. So that's sort of how it comes across for me. Yeah, I, I kind of have maybe the opposite in, in like the creative journey. Like I, growing up, wanted to be a doctor, and then I studied math and economics and just never saw myself as artistic. Um, and my parents are both academics and kind of 
drilled into me that to be an artist is a wonderful way to be poor and homeless. Um, (laughs) That's you. So I think it was just like not ever on my radar. But then I started at one of my first jobs putting my feelings into charts because charts was like the entry point to creativity and to drawing that I could access. And then I think that marriage of like visual and then also understanding like the quantitative side of something, I just don't think there's enough of that in the world. Like I really deeply believe that there's so much fascinating stuff going on in economics, which is traditionally thought of as dodgy and boring. And if you just package it differently and like infuse it with some like creativity with illustrations, that suddenly it comes to humor, life. And also, humor, yeah, like yeah. that it comes to life in a totally different way and can become accessible and engaging to a much broader audience than it normally is. The standard textbook is just an abomination of design. And so that was really when we talked about the book, a big part of it on both of our ends was we want to take down this idea that emotion doesn't belong in the workplace, that emotions are scary or that there's something that you need to like beat into submission. And so a huge element of that was that the book should feel like warm and engaging and fun and it should make you laugh um, so that you treat it with the same affection that you hopefully now treat your emotions with. Wow. I love that. And, and, how did you come to be so passionate about the idea of emotions in the workplace in the first place? Like, had you had experiences with jobs where if anyone expressed an emotion that was deeply frowned upon or was it some other pathway? When I was in my early 20s, I was working at a job at a startup and I it was very stressful. And I went to work one day and I this area above my right eye went completely numb and I ignored it and then eventually went to the doctor and the doctor was like, do you, are you stressed at work? And I was like, yes. Like, is that a rhetorical question? Like, of course I am. He was like, I think this is just from stress. And so as I was leaving the doctor's office, I had this epiphany of, oh, this is not normal and I'm not dealing with the underlying emotions. And so they're coming out in physical manifestations, which is very scary. And I ended up quitting that job a few months later, but I think that's really what, what got me interested in it. Okay. And have you been in workplaces since then where you felt that emotions were managed? Well, managed is even the wrong word. And it, it just crept into the question that I was asking <laughs> you, um, that there, that emotions had their proper home. Mm, yeah. So I, I currently work, I'm a designer at IDEO, and that is a workplace where uh, we are asked to bring our full selves to work. And um, part of our job is being creative. And so there, there absolutely has to be emotions present in that. So I think I've learned a lot from working there and seeing how um, it's okay to cry sometimes and laugh and have lots of emotions. Yeah. How about for you? I guess my first introduction into emotions at work was when I started having really horrible migraines. And I, looking back, oh, I was... So it's such a similar story. Yeah. And I think it's a much more universal story than we think. Uh, and I, looking back, I was working... I interrupt you for one yeah. second to just ask, how many people here have had physical manifestations of <laughs> stressful emotions at work? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of you. Okay, go ahead. Um, I was working as an economic consultant. And I remember one evening I went to dinner with two of my friends, they were like consultants. And then our fourth friend who was doing more of an artistic role and like really loved her job. And the three of us that were consultants, we were talking about these crazy headaches we were getting. And one of my friend at one point was like, my head feels like it's on fire sometimes. And then we just kind of moved on. And my fourth friend was like, 
this is not okay. Like, how is this just something that you're like, oh yeah, we all have these wildly debilitating headaches. Next topic. Um, so, but looking back, I don't, I don't think it was the work environment. I think a lot of it was how I entered the work environment and that I didn't have a way to express myself and that I so strongly felt that, especially as like a female, I needed to not fuss and not feel and just put my head down and do the work and never question that. Um, and that also prevented me from understanding that like I love to be creative and that that might be more meaningful. And then to your question of like, have you worked in a place where emotions matter? I currently work, I just started two months ago, at a company called Humu, which was founded by Laszlo Bach, who led uh, people operations at Google for 10 years and has like thought so deeply from a scientific lens about how emotion belongs in the workplace. And even having read his book, having read through the same research that he's read through, he's done things, and I'm like, I know what you're doing. Like, I know what paper this is based off, and it feels so good. <laughs> um, so, like, when I started, he sat down, there was another new person, and he was like, the interview process was the interview. This is not a tryout anymore. Like, you are part of a family. You don't have to be afraid. If you don't know everything at the end of the week, we don't expect you to. Onboarding is really stressful. You're going to have days when you feel overwhelmed. I just want you to know it's totally normal. It's totally okay. We care about you. You're here. We can't wait to see where you are in a year. Um, and I think just that, like hearing the CEO and, and like your boss tell you that is so powerful, even if you're like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> so. what, what do you think about the idea of saying um, we're all a family? Because you still, in a workplace setting, sometimes you're going to be letting people go. Sometimes there's going to be, you're not going to donate kidneys for each other most of the time, mm -hmm. things like that. I always think about that question because mm -hmm. I think on the one hand, it's wonderful to think of your colleagues in that all-embracing way. And then I also wonder, does that lend a note of inauthenticity to the situation because you're not in kidney donating mode, let's say? Yeah. I think it's often a word used in startups, and definitely correct me if that's wrong. I've had that used, right, that word used to describe multiple different office places, and I think it becomes loaded when it's presented as an expectation as opposed to a norm. Um, so the expectation is like, you're going to be here all the time, this is your priority, this is what you're going to live and die for, whereas the way that Laszlo presented it, it felt much more, and I think this was also kind of like in his gestures and in the way that it was presented, it was much more like, we actually care about you as a human being, not just as an employee. So I agree that it can be an extremely loaded word, and I think it can be used against people and to, for, to like cause a lot of anxiety, but in this context, it didn't feel like that. So I think it, it just, it's so much to, about like all the other kind of signals that you're getting and the implicit cues that you're picking up on. So it's interesting, you were talking about um, in previous jobs, coming in and feeling like you were really girding yourself to go into work. And, and as you were talking about that, I was remembering, I, I, I used to be a corporate lawyer a million years ago, and I so clearly remember the feeling of putting on my work clothes in the morning and feeling like I was actually donning some kind of a like a super woman costume, but it wasn't even really that. It was more like a, a mask, um, you know, and, and feeling like you're putting on your mask in terms of the way you speak and the way you interact. Do you think it's possible to get to a space at work where there's absolutely none of that and you really feel just as much yourself as you do in your most intimate parts of your life? 
I'm sure it's possible and I'm sure people do. I, I don't know that that's the right answer for everyone. Mm -hmm. It is an environment where people get fired and um, there's, you know, client relationships and it's, just, it's not the same thing as a family or a friendship all of the time. Um, we talk in the book about this idea of being selectively vulnerable. So usually for leaders, but really for all of us, we have to walk the line between being authentic, which is really important and lets people trust us more because we're not hiding our emotions. On the other hand, not sharing too much because then people lose respect for you if you're sharing things that are not appropriate. And so we, ha we all have to walk this balance. And I think um, we all know people who are oversharers and that's a lot to deal with. So the question that I always ask myself is, if I'm about to share something, how would I feel if my boss were to share this with me? And if I were to feel really uh, like honored that she was letting me know this and, oh, wow, I'm so grateful that you shared that with me, then I would share it. Mm -hmm. If I would feel like, well, you just crossed a line and I didn't really need to know that, mm -hmm. then I don't share it. That's interesting. Um, and do you see there being a difference uh, depending on where in the hierarchy you are? And I ask this because I just saw a study uh, recently that, that showed that... Um, when people share their vulnerabilities you know, down, so to speak, with somebody who is lower on the hierarchy than they are, that that leads to more of a loss of respect and more discomfort than if the sharing goes in the other direction. And I'm, I'm curious if you've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The research does back that up where leaders are looked at longer and harder, especially for what they share. Like we're just paying attention to that sort of our like base nature is like who's in charge and I need to pay attention to them. And so we're watching them much more closely and we're evaluating and reading into everything they say much more closely. You have such an incredible collaboration. <laughs> How did that come to be? Um, and you're not even on the same coast. Yeah. <laughs> and you both have jobs. So you're doing all this incredible creative work yeah. long distance with other work that you're also doing. So what, what does that look like? Uh, I think we've done a really good job of kind of always saying that we want to be friends throughout this entire process. And I think having that as the umbrella for all our conversations um, has helped us make choices that preserve the friendship. And I think that's hopefully what comes across in the book too. So for example, we early, so we were friends before we wrote the book and we're still friends. <laughs> Every time I say, I'm like, yeah, Molly and I used to be friends before the book. If you're like, <laughs> like, no, 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 still friends. How did you um, become friends? What's the story? Oh yeah. So I was living in San Francisco and decided to take a job in New York and I had never lived in New York and I think I'm probably very West coast and like disposition. And so I was terrified of moving here. I thought that everyone was gonna be really mean to me. Like I would eat a pretzel and they'd be like, oh, you San Francisco tourist, get out of here. Um, and so I frantically emailed all my friends and was, and was like, please set me up on platonic friend dates with your favorite people in New York because I need a safety net. I just need like one person that's going to be there for me. And Molly was one of those very first platonic friend dates. And we just... How long ago was this? Five years, five, six years Yeah, now? five years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we were both introverts. And so a lot of our early conversations, I think even in an early conversation, we like talked about your book and that like bonded, bonded us. Um, we also both have very rigid sleep routines <laughs> because we're not good sleepers. So we have like our favorite white noise machine and our favorite sleep mask and like our favorite brand of earplugs. <laughs> so I think we were 
both neurotic and creative in similar <laughs> ways. Um, and then, yeah, I think one of the things that was interesting as we started writing this book, and at that point I had moved back to San Francisco, we were on opposite coasts, we spent so much time on the phone or in emails or in video chats together, and after three months we both mutually realized that we had absolutely no idea what was actually going on in the other person's life because suddenly it just felt like we were in each other's lives so much and yet only in this professional context. And so then we and the, so then it was like preserve the friendship and then it was we decided at the beginning of each call we would spend 15 to 20 minutes so we were talking every weekend only talking about our personal lives so it was like what did you do this week how's like your relationship how's your apartment move yeah it was a good reminder that you just like need to create space for those interactions because they smooth everything else out um, and then we also tried Molly once called me, and I just, I love this, and I highly recommend people do this. And she said, this isn't an issue yet, and I'm not upset with you, but there's this thing that I could see happening, and I just want us to talk through it and make sure that we're on the same page and, like, voice my feelings before you've even done anything. Um, and I thought that was just, like, a it, was, it's a, it was a really great way of her kind of setting her boundaries and talking through what she wanted to talk through in a very like non-confrontational, not like victim perpetrator type way. And also not letting it get to a point where we just like hated each other. <laughs> yeah, that sounds actually so wise. Like your emotional alarm bells were probably not going off mm. with that kind of an introduction the way they might have been with a more confrontive yeah. type of voicing the issue. Yeah, and that's something I, I do with my husband. And this is where I think like so often we forget in the workplace that we're humans. And so we're just like, well, how would I deal with this at work? And it's like, no, I'm a human rather than like just somebody at work. And we all know, or we've learned how to deal with a lot of these issues in our personal lives. And so this is something that my husband and I do where we're like, this is not a big deal yet, but I could imagine that if you keep doing this for the next year, it will be a big deal. So I'm telling you now before I'm upset about it. And we have just done that so often that we, yeah, our, our emotional response is like very low. It's like, oh yeah, like, I didn't even know that was bothering you. Like, I'll stop doing that or whatever. And so, yeah, I think it, that translates to the workplace where, you know, how could you try to bring these issues up before they have caused a huge conflict in your team? Coming back to the collaboration, <laughs> how did you figure out that you were going to work together in this way? Like, how did you even come up with this style, that this shared style that you seem to have? Like, was that something that you developed over time? Did it just emerge spontaneously? Like, how did this happen? So I was writing some articles. I was in grad school when we met, and um, Liz was doing illustrations on like Twitter and Instagram, and I really loved her illustrations, and I was like, oh, would you illustrate an article for me? So we were just like, let's, like, this is really fun. The collaboration is fun. Um, let's pitch these articles to random places. And then, yeah, that article did so well, and... Uh, we were like, maybe we should think about writing a book. There's already an amazing book written about introversion. We're not going to write a better book than that. So, like, what sort of a broader topic? That was a real conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were like, it's like, no, not even bother. Um, and then uh, the broader sort of topic that we were both interested in was emotions at work. Okay. On emotions at work, you talk about the importance of caring less at work. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah, so we still think it's great to have a job you love and you should be passionate about your work. Um, it just becomes really dangerous when work is the only thing that you value in your life. And I think too often now, 
because we are accessible 24-7, we feel accountable 24-7, the lines between our personal and professional lives are like non-existent or like porous at best. And so that, it's the chapter on health in our book, and it's really just about encouraging people to take the breaks you need to get some emotional distance for your, from your job, because if you don't have that and your boss gives you critical feedback that under normal circumstances you might see as an opportunity to learn and grow and improve, if you have nothing else, if this is like everything to you and you've wrapped your entire sense of self-worth and identity in your work, suddenly that feels like a complete teardown of who you are. Um, so it's actually, and there's a lot of research that backs this up. If you take vacations, if you nurture your personal life, if you just have techniques to let yourself not get so anxious, not get so nervous, you actually are a more successful employee and you're more likely to get promoted. I had an interesting conversation with my friend recently, which was, we were talking about how we had both, and I think many people, had operated early on in our careers under this assumption that like, when I get that promotion, I'll be happy. Or like, when I get that bonus, everything will be great. And as we've gotten older, and also with the research that I've done and just looking at different situations where I've succeeded, I think it's much more like, when I'm happy, I will get that promotion. Um, and when I feel great and just feel positive and feel like able to handle life, that's when I'll get that bonus. Seems incredibly wise. It's kind of a different version of the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the idea that you always need yeah. the next possession to make you happy, but instead it's the next promotion. Yeah, you just got to love being on the treadmill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You talk about, and you have this on your website, you've got um, an assessment to help you figure out if you're an ovary motor or an undery motor. So can you explain what that means and maybe talk about where you guys fall on that spectrum? Yeah. So uh, the two different sides, and you can be definitely in the middle, are under a motor and over a motor. 
So under-emoters are people who tend to not express their emotions as freely. I'm definitely an under-emoter. And so one isn't good or bad, but what that means for an under-emoter is um, people are going to come to you when they are in crisis, when they need someone to help them calm down. So this will often happen to me. Friends or colleagues will come to me, and I'll be able to sit with them and really calmly talk through what's going on. On the other hand, it takes me a lot of energy to get really excited and show a lot of my emotions. Um, and so over-emoters, those are the people you go to when you're like, I have really exciting news. And they're like, this is amazing. And they get super excited and emotional with you. The downside of that is that sometimes they can express emotions that are not appropriate for the situation or that they regret expressing later on just because they are more free to express them. What do you think you are? Uh... I think I just wildly vacillate between the two. Um, I think when I get excited, I get really excited. Um, but then I definitely, and I used to be much worse at this pre-book research. Uh, when I would get upset, I would I just shut down. Like, I just don't want to talk about it. And I, my parents are both extremely stoic Nordic people. And so I think I just revert to this, like, everything's fine, even though I'm just like... Uh, and so actually with my partner, we've gotten into this because he would just be like, everything's not fine. Like everything in your body is communicating not fine. <laughs> um, and so now we've gotten into this um, habit, which I think is really good. So a lot of times it wouldn't even be him. Most of the time it would just be like, I had a bad day or I was frustrated because of traffic. And then I just didn't want to talk about it. But if I didn't flag that, he would think that I had done something to upset that, or that he had done something to upset me. So now we have this, we've made a pact to each other that if we're frustrated, say like I'm grumpy about something, I walk in the door and I just go, I'm grumpy, it's not you, I need like 15 minutes by myself and then I'll come down and, and I don't want it to affect you. And even just saying the word like I don't want it to affect you, I really, really believe that and want that. And it's a good, it's both a flag for him of like, okay, I'll give you the space, it's not me. And it's a flag for me of like, I don't want this to ruin the rest of our evening. Um, and so I think in the workplace, that can also be really valuable. Like in the book, we say, just learn to talk about your emotions without getting emotional. And so you can just walk in the office and say, I didn't sleep well last night. I just need a moment to get a cup of coffee. It has nothing to do with you, especially if you're a manager. Like your reports just look to you so much. And you're, the cues that you send off deeply affect how they feel. Yeah, it's, also, it's, yeah, it's being very empathetic, really, mm. at its base. And, and so... To what extent do you recommend to people once they identify which way they lean um, to correct a little bit for that? And I'll tell you where this question is coming from, which is, you know, I, I work so much with introverts and I hear so often from people uh, who are working with an introverted colleague or boss or what have you, um, you know, they'll say, Oh, this person, see, we, we just had this big win, let's say, um, in our team. And this person seemed not even to care that much. Like they didn't get that excited about it. Um, and then, and then you talk to the person in question and they actually really do care deeply and, and they were excited, but they express it in this much more internal way. Um, and I think that once you've identified as somebody who does that, that it's great to simultaneously accept yourself, but also for the sake of people around you, you know, give yourself a push to act in a more, let's say, outwardly excited way for their sakes. So how do you advise people to strike that balance between honoring who they are and stretching for, their, for the sakes of their colleagues? Mm. 
Yeah, so I have had to think about this personally at work because, I, as I said, I'm an under-motor, and some of the feedback that I got was that I wasn't uh, coming across as warm, mm-hmm. um, especially during first meetings with clients. And I think a lot of that is like, it's about, you know, we're so happy to be working with you. I'm so happy to meet you. Like, we're so happy to be kicking off this project, which I'm just like, it feels inauthentic. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't do that and that that's not important to the business. And so how do I find ways to do that in my own authentic way? And so a lot of that is like, finding people one-on-one. So like, I may not do that in a big kickoff meeting, but I can connect with the clients before after the meeting one-on-one and be like, let me really engage with you. I'm really excited to work with you. Um, asking questions is a really good way for me to do that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, on the over-emotor side, I think it's, again, like you have such a gift, you really can buoy people's spirits, but um, especially with negative emotions, um, it's just about lengthening that pause between stimulus and response and trying to sit with it and say, okay, is this something that I really need to share or is this something that uh, I'm feeling in the moment and I'll work through it and I don't need to share it? Adam Grant has, he said, that most successful leaders usually operate as ambiverts, which I think ties into this, which is that they're able to understand their tendencies and then play those up or down depending on the situation. So if you're a very introverted leader or if you're an under-remoter, understanding that in sometimes you have to kind of step out of your comfort zone. And it's not inauthentic. It's more just like verbalizing what you're feeling so that other people can see that too. Um, it's funny about the Molly's client feedback. My mom is German and extremely efficient, and she runs a translation business, and at one point I was looking over her shoulder at the emails she was writing to Americans, and they would be like, here's the file, Sylvia. And I was like, you got it, you know, these are American clients, you have to be like, hope you're well, here's the file, let me know if you have any questions, have a great weekend, and she was like, why? (laughs) She was like, it's a waste of time, and I was like, no, these are like the emotional norms, (laughs) you got to be great, you got to be amazing, Um, and so she started doing that, and then she she actually called me a few weeks ago, she's like, I asked someone how their weekend was, and they told me a lovely story about their family, (laughs) and I was just like, yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a nice example of like, you can also, the more that you push yourself to do some of these things, you'll be, you might be surprised at how nice it feels to get that in return. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to ask about one of your other categories that you have, which is you can be a thinker and in the moment feeler or a calculating feeler. So what does that mean? So in the moment feelers, um, it goes back to really that the the space between the stimulus and response. So in the moment feelers, there's like no space. It's like feeling, verbalize it. Um, and that can be good. It can also be difficult when it's negative emotions. So then um, thinkers are like that space is, is really long. So they're going to have an emotion. They're going to process it for a long time. Why am I feeling this? What could have been causing this? And then the third one is calculating feeler, which is like somewhere in between. Yeah. So again, I think just self-knowledge is really important to understand how you can sort of get yourself into trouble in the workplace if you um, have too short of a response or too long of a response, which is probably where I am at, which is like, I'm going to think about it forever and sort of not validate some of those things and, and then never share them with other people. Right, 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 right. Okay, wait. I want to ask you about the idea that we hope the research is correct, that the humanization of the workplace um, is actually a good thing, good for the bottom line, too. I think it's true. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. And I know that, you know, there was that study that Google did that found that 
their top performing teams when they when they kind of um, drill down to figure out what were the components of those teams, the top seven components that those teams had all had to do with so-called soft skills of being uh, really emotionally attuned people and, and uh, working together well and so on. And actual kind of tech skills and STEM skills were like number eight on the list. So I like that study. But what, what do you think in general about this concept? I love this question. So at Humu, which is the company that I work at now, our work revolves around people take a diagnostic and then we surface what they can act on that will have the most impact. And then we send them for the next six months nudges, which are like little small suggestions that are timely. So before one-on-one with your manager, if it's come out that you feel like your manager isn't willing to take feedback, we'll send the manager a nudge and you a nudge that hopefully like spur a complimentary conversation. So it's like, manager, here's why it's important to invite feedback from your reports. Report, here's how to give feedback in a way that's not so scary for your manager. And so this whole business model is based on the idea that happier people are more productive. And there's a lot of research that shows that, and it's not happy in the sense of like, oh, I'm euphoric all the time. It's happy in the sense of like, I feel positive emotions at work. I feel supported when I feel negative emotions at work. I don't like pile anxiety on top of my anxiety. Um, I feel safe throwing out ideas. This concept of psychological safety, I can admit mistakes, take risks without fear of reprisal. If you want to build a financial case for it, the biggest one to look at is just tenure. Um, so when tenure. tenure, so if people are going to stay or leave, and LinkedIn added to their employee engagement survey a few years ago questions around belonging, and two of those questions, one which is, when I make a mistake, I feel safe, and the other question is, I feel that someone here cares about me personally and is invested in my future. Those two questions were among the biggest predictor of whether they were going to stay or leave. Wow. Yeah, and wow. so like That's if you fantastic. think about how much money, and you can stop me, I just get really excited. Yeah, no, <laughs> if you think so about, important. Like how much money goes into onboarding, into recruiting, into interviewing, um, and, and, then, and then to have that person leave after six months, just like, and it's not that hard. Like the nudges that we send out are things like when someone throws out an idea, say, thanks for sharing. I'm really glad that you did that. Um, when someone flags an issue, say, hey, it's really important as a team that we're able to do this because we don't want this issue to go unnoticed and then have a plane fall out of the sky. Yeah, to me, it's just like there's so much evidence that this matters that it's, yeah, I just, I want to get to a day where this question is not asked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How receptive do you see companies being in general to this idea and how much is there still a kind of 1950s skepticism of, oh, you know, that's just, that, that's not there's, the real stuff. Yeah, there's definitely skepticism. Uh, and I think, so one of the things that I think about a lot in this role is, yeah, so example is like, let's say that you just want people to express gratitude because we know that when there's a culture of compassion and gratitude, performance goes up, productivity goes up, tenure goes up you probably have to message that differently to like an investment bank (laughs) than you do to somewhere else. Um, I think they become receptive once you show the ROI and that that exists. So I I think the messaging needs to be different in different contexts, but there is like a very strong financial case for this. And so if you can lead with that, I think often that's the right entry point into just like stop yelling at people. And there's research on that too. Like, uh, hedge fund managers who are not punitive, actually their teams have better returns. Um, so even these roles that we think like you need to be like bold and brash, it's still better if you're kinder and, and supportive. And, okay. 
I want to drill down on this a little bit because you just used the word compassionate and we talk a lot um, nowadays about a compassionate workplace. So the meaning of the word compassion is literally with suffering, you know, so to be with somebody else's suffering. That's a pretty freighty thing, uh, weighty thing. Um, what do you think about the idea of tears at work and of people coming to work and truly showing whatever happens to be going on in their lives? And, and we touched on this a little bit at the beginning, and I was thinking as we were talking about it, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's a very tricky thing because we want authenticity, we want compassion, we don't really want oversharing on some level, but you can't really have true compassion without that in some way. So how, how do you bridge that gap? Hmm. So this is the number one question that we got about the book when we said we're writing a book about emotions at work. It was like, what about crying at work? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Especially for women. Hmm. Um, so here's what I wish Liz has her, what she wishes would, would stop being asked. And that is the question that I wish would stop being asked because I wish that it would be okay to cry at work. And understanding that uh, for women especially, tears are not always a signal of anger. They are often a signal of sadness or that you really care about something. Mm -hmm. And so in an office environment, when we see someone crying, we're like, oh, they're sad. This must be contained. I don't know how to deal with this. I just need to like shut this down, get them out of the room. Like it's, we just get very awkward about it. And it's a biological response. It's, you know, it's not something that we can control a lot of the time. So what we recommend is um, if you are crying at work to, um, to say, you know, can we come back to this? I'm having an emotional response. Um, and to, to, to leave because we feel better when we cry by ourselves or alone. It does not feel, to cry, feel good to cry in front of a group of people. Um, so to go deal with that. But then so often we never want to think about that again. We're like, that was so embarrassing. And so we don't do the emotional work of well, what caused the tears, what was behind that. It was, is it that you were really frustrated or you cared a lot or you hate your job or you didn't sleep last night? And if it's something that is chronic, then you need to deal with that. So like if you're crying every week at work, that's a problem and you should deal with the underlying issue. Um, we, we spoke with this woman who is a TV writer and she started crying in the writer's room because she felt really strongly about um, what's going on politically in our country and she wanted the TV show to talk about it and they were like, we're not going to go there. And she just started crying. She was like, I care so much about this. And so I just think we need a better understanding of, of what's behind the tears. And what do you think is the role of leaders in that in terms of how forthcoming they should be with their, their own sufferings of whatever it happens to be? And I know, you know, we talked about that a little bit about, well, it, it's, it's a lot more treacherous, I think, for leaders to do that. But I don't know, I, like, I was very struck when people first started talking about the concept of psychological safety. Um, there was this big New York Times Magazine article that came out about it and the research that had been done at Google finding that the most effective teams were the psychologically safe ones. And in the article, they gave the example of a leader at Google coming forth and sharing with his team for the first time that he was battling cancer. And no one had known that before. And that was given as an example of, well, you see, it's good for leaders to be able to do this. And I thought to myself when I read that, that is true, but we're only part of the way there because 
something like your battle with cancer is still sort of socially acceptable to talk about as a grief, I think because it's externally visited upon you. Um, mm. But if you're going through a grief that is more difficult to talk about, you know, maybe because of some sort of personal issue in your life, that's still not okay. And there still, I think, is not psychological safety around that. And so I don't really know what my question is other than like, how do we get there and should we get there? Yeah. Um, so I think that there are ways to bring negative emotions into the workplace that are still productive and structured. And so I also think there is, if something is affecting your performance, if you're not sleeping, like it is important to your team or your manager or your reports to be aware of that so that they perceive your work a little differently. So sometimes, you know, I think often we reward outstanding work. And I think that one thing that could be done more is just to like, if you know that someone on your team is going through a lot personally, just reward showing up. And like, just like, there are times when it's like, as a manager, I would want to sit there and be like, hey, I know that you have a lot going on. I'm just really happy that you're here. You're finding projects that you can work on that you can still get done. You're like putting forth an effort. I really appreciate that. I think like recognizing that is super important. And again, in the book, we give this advice that I think is applicable to all these situations, which is flag it for people and go into as much, not as much, as, as little detail as you feel comfortable. Like you can just say, I'm going through a lot personally right now. Just want to let you know that it's something that might affect my work, but I'm still like committed to this job, I blah, blah. And I think that like a leader too can say that. Um, otherwise, people are going to start to like make assumptions about your work. Uh, so I, I think keeping in mind that it's possible to have these conversations in a not oversharey way. Yeah. And then also for people who are on the receiving end of that to kind of adjust a little bit, especially if that person has been a really competent employee or a great performer, to just kind of give them some space and time. Because if you do that, they'll be even more loyal to the organization. And then when they come back and they're on their A-game, like you've really just, you've got someone for life. Yeah, I love that. And there's a theme that I, I notice keeps coming out of, of many of your comments, which is that whatever you're feeling is going to communicate itself to the people around you, regardless of whether you intend it to or not. And so you might as well, A, know what that feeling is, and B, be forthright about it. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't have to divulge your whole life, but you can, you can still um, communicate it. Most ideas bounce off us, but some actually change us. If you want more of those ideas in your life, there's no better place to find them than the Next Big Idea app. We partnered with hundreds of the world's leading nonfiction authors to create audio summaries of their books. We call these summaries Book Bites, and our app features a new one every single day. You can listen to a book bite in 12 minutes or read it in five. There's no other place on the planet where you can listen to book summaries created by the authors themselves. And that's not all we have waiting for you when you download the Next Big Idea app. We've also got professionally narrated summaries of classic books, video and audio masterclasses, ad-free versions of this podcast, and tons of other member benefits. So what are you waiting for? Pause this recording, open your app store, and search for the Next Big Idea. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now.
Okay, I think we are now at the time where we're going to open this up to all of your questions and comments. Um, we've been talking about so many emotional topics, so you might have um, all kinds of questions about it. Um, I teach emotional intelligence as part of a course that I run on collaboration and innovation. And I, in the literature, I've read that feelings are your internal facts. And so when I got to the part in your book where you said feelings aren't facts, I was a little confused. I think what you mean is that your perceptions of how other people are feeling might not be true because you're layering it with assumptions. But I think that everything that you've been saying so far really speaks to if I'm sad, if I'm going through death or divorce or cancer, that's my truth. And then how to process that. So I just would love for you to clarify feelings aren't facts, if you would. Yeah, so that I believe is in the communication chapter, and you're exactly right. It is your interpretation of someone else's feelings are not facts. Um, so often we read into how people feel, especially in digital communication where there's a lack of context where we're like, I'm going to read this email and assume that my boss is mad at me without having any facts about that. Yeah. And I'll share an anecdote that I think highlights that, which is a few years ago at a company I was working at, we hired a new employee, and I noticed that Every time I asked him a question, when he responded, he would start speaking very slowly and over-enunciate each word. And I was, I was enraged. Like, I was so mad at him. Um, and that was like, that feeling was a fact. I was, for a fact, irritated more than that. And then a few weeks later, the team went out for dinner, and he and I were having a pretty good conversation. And just without malice, I brought up, and I was like, hey, do you notice that when I ask you something, you really slow down? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm working on it. I'm just really nervous around you, and so I'm just making sure to pick every word really carefully. And so while the fact was that I was frustrated with him, the assumption that that feeling was based on was not a fact. It was actually like a complete misperception of the situation. And then having a discussion about that, he and I became like really close friends. So, yeah. That's a great story. So I noticed the theme of, of being emotions in the office, and I'm wondering if you could talk to the challenge about those of us, I manage a team of 12 and everyone is remote. Mm. And so assessing their emotions through Slack, through email and phone call and not being face-to-face -face that often, um, how that impacts and addressing that. Mm. Yeah, um, I think the, the stuff that we heard in, uh, the research points to is um, to try to do at least video conference as much as possible. You may already be doing that. Um, we pick up on a lot of emotional cues through that. Um, so defaulting to video conference is the biggest thing. Um, Liz also worked remotely, so I'll let you give a couple tips too. Yeah, um, so you said your team is 12? or Yeah, so I think that's a, actually a really nice size for remote because it's still, so one thing that's great is if you can find core hours when everyone will be available and then have like a daily check-in during that time. Another thing is, yeah, to Molly's point, like use video conference, but if the video conference is like buffering or getting jittery, just go to phone. Don't be so married to video conference. But I think the most important is that it's really true with remote workers that it's like out of sight, out of mind. And so if I'm sitting here and Molly and I are working together, it's so easy for me to turn and ask her a question or like bump into her in the kitchen. And then I might realize, oh, I left you off this email thread and catch her up. I might just, she might tell me about like her weekend. And so to create space for these social interactions that can actually lead to work conversations, 
Um, so a lot of companies will do like a virtual coffee or a virtual happy hour. Um, Buffer, whose staff is all remote, they do opt-in calls, which is you can throw your name in a pot and then every month you'll be randomly assigned to one of your colleagues and an hour goes on your calendar. You can only talk about non-work stuff. So it's really about like greasing the social wheels. And then the last thing I'll say is um, I think uh, one thing that's really lovely is sending people physical stuff. Like there's just something amazing about having an artifact. It like feels real. Um, so for, for my birthday when I was working remote, the company I was working for sent me a cake and that was like just so lovely. The card on the cake was lost in the mail. So I actually thought for like six hours before I realized who sent it to me that someone was trying to kill me with a cake. <laughs> so just like you can maybe send an email. It's like, hey, we sent you a cake. Just want to make sure it arrived. Because I was like texting all my friends and no one took responsibility for it. Um, but I, th I think there's something magical about even just like a T-shirt or a sticker or something that like really connects you with the, with the remote people. I want to ask about alcohol. You know, when you, <laughs> when you travel around the world, a lot of work cultures, this is the number one way to lower people's barriers and talk about emotional things. It's very clear. I've struggled, you know, in startup culture in the U.S. with times when I felt like I'm doing my best work connecting with people in the after hours drinks. It seems more and more dangerous to do that. So, you know, I'm curious what you've seen there, what you, your thoughts are about it. And if not, if that's off limits in a lot of cultures or for a lot of reasons, what are some other practices to get to that same 1030 mm. at night, three drink honesty? <laughs> so um, one of the books that we cite in our book is this book called The Culture Map by Erin Meyer, which I really recommend reading. And she talks about there's eight different scales or tensions of um, the most common um, issues that happen between team members who are from different cultures. So like being on time, not being on time, uh, giving direct negative feedback, not giving direct negative feedback. And one of them is how do you build trust? Is it through doing the work together or through socializing and getting to know each other as people? So there are countries, like in China, it is totally inappropriate to talk about work before you've had a meal with somebody. And in the U.S., we tend to build trust through doing the work more. We're a, a country of immigrants, and so it's just like, I don't really know how to trust you unless I like sit down and do the work with you. So that makes it, I think, harder for us to remember that like, even though that is how we build trust, we're still humans and still deeper trust will come through social interactions. And so we don't have a culture of making as much time for that. Like in Britain, you have the pub culture, and everyone just goes to the pub. And it's I would say that that's still totally fine. I mean, I, I don't think that um, even given recent events, like we, you know, alcohol is uniformly bad, or you know, shouldn't be used as a way to get to know your team members. Um, but I do think it's like, how do we, as Americans especially, remember that we have to schedule in time for this, and it doesn't have to be after hours. It could be. I mean, so often workplaces, people don't eat lunch together. Like that you just eat at your desk. Um, so even without alcohol, I think that's like a really easy way to start. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about make-believe? 
IDEO? Yeah, so um, I work at IDEO, and we um, have this thing every Thursday at lunch called Make Believe Time, which is where we do something that's craft-related. It's, it's like you're eight years old again, so we've done like finger painting where the paint is has a smell to it, but it's not the thing that matches it, so like pink will be uh, mint. And then you're supposed to like paint with your fingers what it smells like. I mean, really wacky stuff. We've done like blind contour drawing and creating a cocktail that was based, a, a mock cocktail that was based on your first kiss. And so um, <laughs> it's, it just really gets you out of your comfort zone and allows you to not focus on work. And you do hear stories like about people's first kisses that you would never hear in the workplace environment. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to speak slowly and precisely so I get this right. Uh, I, 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 listened to a, I listened to a podcast recently uh, on Future Thinkers by Daniel Schmachtenberger, and he spoke about the current economic system because it feels to me like this movement, which I fully subscribe to, comes against the current economic system, the measures of success. And if we think about the world's most valuable companies, tech companies, law firms, finance companies, um, and I want to quote him here, um, it's a system that is not just attracting, but incenting and conditioning a kind of abstract psychopathy, where you know, shutting off your empathy actually leads to success. Where does this movement come up against the fact, regrettably, that the world's most valuable companies are those environments, and the, the measure of success is financial? Um, that, that's what feels like the systemic battle versus this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can turn the tide. How do you, how do you persuade Goldman Sachs not to be that kind of company? Um, I, I think it comes back to this ROI argument that does exist. And so at Humu, some of the people that we're nudging are in call centers, and they have very strict performance metrics that I think we normally wouldn't think about as or associate with empathy. So it's like, how long are you on the call? How many calls are you getting through? What's your success rate? What do customers say? Um, and yeah, like, what do customers say? You know, you have to be empathetic for that. And there's a lot of research, too, that shows that even in customer service-facing roles, so I'm thinking of now, like, the gig economy or, like, a barista at Starbucks who are just, or just again, people who have, we might normally think of, have, like, these really strict, like, you have to perform and you have to do this many things per hour, and that's, there's no emotion involved in that. When the employee is happy, the customer is happier, and the employee is able to perform better. So I think, again, these we're not asking for huge changes. Like, I don't need everyone to go on a two-week retreat in Hawaii and, like, learn to center themselves or something. Like, sounds great. I would love to do that. Um, I have nothing against that. But, I, but it's just small things. It's, it's just thanking someone, asking if you can do, if you can do anything for them. Um, and I think that does show up in performance. So I guess my argument of, oh, the most valuable companies in the world are ones where the culture is broken, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think there's a lot of tech companies that are very profitable that actually have good company or good cultures. And I would also say those companies could be more profitable if they focused a little on retaining their best employees uh, and, and making their staff happier. And then ultimately that will make customers happy. I think it's also... I'm, I'm just going to like lightly put my foot in this water, uh, which is I think some of these companies with really bad cultures, they're very profitable now, but it remains to be seen where they are in 20 years. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually curious about kind of what uh, y'all's book, book writing process was like. I'm always fascinated learning uh, just people's different styles of writing a book. Uh, given that you, you both wrote it, uh, curious about what that was like. We had to figure it out along the way. Um, <laughs> 
We ended up getting to the point where uh, we had come up with an outline together. And actually, even before we had sold the book, we had started a really long research document. And we, we knew the chapters. And so every time we would read an article or talk to someone, we would add it to that document. And so then when we started writing the chapter, we had some material to go off of. One of us would then, we'd alternate chapters. So one of us would write the outline, like a detailed outline. The other person would review it. Then that first person would write the first draft. Then the other person would get it in. It was actually really nice because I think when you're writing alone, you can get to the point where you're like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm really blocked. Throw it over to Liz. Like, <laughs> let Liz look at it for a couple of weeks. Um, so I think that that really helped. And we also had to figure out our, our like actual writing styles, which are slightly different to have a unified voice. So I am much more verbose and like would write a you know 600-page book. Liz is really good at writing things that are short and succinct, and so we had to balance that. But we actually, that actually was a tension for a little while um, because when we, so we would write a chapter and then send it to our editor. And I remember like the tension was that Molly would send me this thing. And I'd be like, this is, we cannot send this to the editor. Like I need to be like a little crab and like cut all this stuff and make sure every word is perfect. And like, is this really what we want to say? And Molly was like, you need to chill out. Like we just like need to publish this book before like 2040. Um, and, but was, we actually ended up, it ended up being really great. So if I have to stare at a blank page, oh, it's so hard for me to fill that page. But I'm really good if you just shoot me a bunch of words to like massage that and then like, you know, put a illustration here and there. And so it actually ended up that like once we had a conversation about like what's really going on here and focusing it on like the work, not on like you send me half-baked stuff and you can't ever get it together. Um, it was like very much about the content. And then we were able to find that like this is actually a hugely complementary skill set. Are you planning to do more work together, whether books or other projects? I think we'd like to. I think we need a little bit of a break <laughs> for now. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like anytime anyone asks us that, the answer is like, yes, but we're always just like deer in the headlights. Like, oh, no, not right now. Yeah. We have time for one more question. So in the beginning, um, Susan, I think you mentioned a stat around vulnerability, and there's a line between vulnerability and being too vulnerable. Can we unpack that a little bit more and talk about that? Just trying to understand more of that. Sure. Um, so yeah, the line is between oversharing and sharing. Um, and the research does show that if you're, and this is especially with leaders, so if a leader um, is authentic and shares some of what they're feeling, we do trust them more. So if you imagine um, a boss having to make an announcement about layoffs, and if that person doesn't show any emotion, we're going to be like, what is this person not human? Like, this is a really difficult thing. The other hand, if you have a leader who's like, I'm terrified. I have no idea what to do right now. <laughs> like, you're going to be like, I have no trust or respect for you. I'm not going to believe anything you say. Or, you know, let's get a new leader in here. And so, again, you have to, as a leader, find what's the right balance for you, your own authentic style. We talked to this guy, Jerry Colonna, who is a coach of many um, Silicon Valley startup CEOs. And he gave us this example of, you know, if you're in the situation where you are like, um, really scared, as a lot of leaders are, that you feel like you don't know what to do, instead of just coming in and saying, I'm really scared, I don't know what to do, you can say something like, I am also 
uh, like feeling like this is a difficult time for this company and I'm here and I'm with you and I'm feeling that as well. However, here's what I suggest that we do for the next three months to get through this time period. So it's pairing, let me be vulnerable and authentic with providing a path forward. I'm just going to wrap up with, with huge thanks um, to all of you for coming out and to Liz and Molly for being in the same place and for being in this place with us. It was really fantastic to hear you in person um, after having read your work and just kind of been amazed by it for some years now. It's just great to be able to talk to you. So thank you all. Thank you so thank much. You.